Second Corinthians here. Um, of course, a couple weeks ago, we looked at First Corinthians. And you understand, I would imagine, that when you're looking at a letter, you're not looking at something that's going to be quite the same as when you're looking at a history. Because a history is formally composed, it's premeditated, and a letter has to address the situation on the ground. So looking for the same degree of organization or structure in Paul's letters that you would expect to find in, say, Deuteronomy or Joshua, well, that's not realistic. They are occasional writings. They are written to meet the need of the moment. So Ecclesiastes is composed. It's thought through. The callbacks, the echoes, the circling, that's all on purpose. Paul is not writing that kind of thing. Now, that doesn't mean that he skips by words that are profitable and true. That doesn't mean he has no concern for saying things well, but it's fundamentally a different kind of writing. And one takes more time than the other, which is not to say that one is more valuable than the other. Now, in 2 Corinthians, you have such an emotional roller coaster that a lot of people have wondered if 2 Corinthians is composed of multiple different letters sort of stitched together. Some people will say, no, 2 Corinthians 10 to 13, that's a severe letter that Paul references, and that really should come in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, or they'll have other rearrangements like that to make. What's driving some of that is that on one moment you seem to find Paul very despairing, the next he's happy, now he's defending himself, now he's mad, now he's happy again, and you think, what in the world is going on here? Well, Paul is on an emotional roller coaster in 2 Corinthians. He does defend himself. He commends the Corinthians for significant progress. He's ecstatic over some of the changes that have come about in Corinth. But he's also constrained by certain adversaries to engage and to engage in terms of who's more credible. And that's distasteful to Paul. He doesn't want to do that, but he doesn't see a way around it. So why are his emotions all over the place? Well, because it was a complicated situation that he was dealing with. You remember in 1 Corinthians, the church was a mess. A lot of stuff was wrong. And Paul wrote a letter, and he tried to set a lot of it right. He sent Titus. He was going to visit, but then he didn't. There's a lot going on, and the situation is still developing, but there have been big improvements. So Paul writes 2 Corinthians to cultivate their ongoing growth in grace. Part of that is he needs to clear up some misunderstandings. On the one hand, they've taken some things he wrote in 1 Corinthians and they've pushed them too far. On the other, some of the offenses that have been directed against him, the person is repentant and Paul says, you know what, you need to comfort him lest he be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. So because the situation has changed now, he's got to tweak things a little bit. And that always happens. You know, Paul writes a letter, he pours his heart and soul into it. Then people misunderstand it and he's got to write again to clarify we're probably all familiar with that phenomenon. So he's going to encourage the good things, but he's also going to ex expose the falsehood of some who were still stirring up trouble. Whether these were new arrivals in Corinth, whether this was one of the parties that he previously mentioned, people who were claiming to be of Cephas or of Apollos or of Christ, we don't know. There's no way for us to really know for sure. 
but there were clearly some there who were still stirring up trouble. Now, when you say all of that, it might sound like Second Corinthians is just, well, you got to read it a chapter at a time, and whatever he's talking about, he's talking about, don't worry about it. I think there is a theme that ties it all together. And I think, I mean, there'd be more than one way to say it, but I think the idea of comfort gets close to it. Now, remember, this is a very personal letter, so you could narrow it down. You could say, Paul is writing about what comforts him. In part, he's writing about why does he need comfort, so the sufferings, the affliction, the persecution, the distress gets incorporated into it. But if you wanted to make a bottom line, I would suggest something like this. You can, you can tell me if I'm wrong, if you read it differently. But I think if you say Paul's manifold comforts all arose from the grace of God, you're getting in the ballpark of what is 2 Corinthians about. There's manifold comforts. There's more than one way that Paul is comforted. But it all boils down to God comforting him. And you have it there in the very beginning of 2 Corinthians. So he identifies himself along with Timothy. He says who he's writing to. He gives them that opening salutation, that grace to you and peace. And then what's the first thing he says? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, our comfort, also abounds through Christ. He's going to use that word for comfort again and again and again. And this is how he starts. He starts by calling God the God of all comfort. So where do all Paul's comforts come from? Well, they come from God. They come from God's grace. And, of course, one of the most famous verses in 2 Corinthians is chapter 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Well, at the very beginning and towards the end, Paul is saying a very similar thing with different language. How does he find comfort? What helps him? What holds him up? What keeps him going? Because the idea of comfort isn't just, oh, I feel better. The idea of comfort is I have strength to continue. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from God. It's God's grace that is comforting him. And it's with that in mind that I did an outline that highlighted those comforts. So in the first seven verses, you, or in the first seven chapters, excuse me, you have a review of his conflict with the Corinthians. What's happened? What's gone down? Of course, being Paul, he incorporates some tremendous theology into that. He talks about his philosophy of ministry again. But the prevailing theme, I think, is God comforted him. He was in so much distress. He was in so much anguish over the Corinthians and God comforted him. So that's the first seven chapters. Then Paul is very comforted by the collection. There is underway a project throughout all the churches where Paul is working to take up funds to alleviate poor saints in Jerusalem who are suffering as a result of famine. Paul derives tremendous comfort from the work that is being done there, from the response of the churches. And then 
chapters 10 through 13, he turns to deal with those who were criticizing, those who were misrepresenting, those who were saying things about him. And that's where he tells us that God's grace is sufficient for him. Amid all his sufferings, amid all his trials, and he gives you quite a list in 2 Corinthians 11, for instance, but God was able to comfort him. So I would describe this as a book of comfort, a book of consolation. I have a book about the Heidelberg Catechism called The Church's Book of Comfort. It's actually a very good book, very interesting. But in the New Testament, I would say that this is the letter, this is the epistle of comfort. Most commentators see three divisions. If you divide it according to content, then most commentators will see these three divisions, but they'll call them different things. Then what are the characteristics of 2 Corinthians? Well, we've already talked about them a little bit. That is probably Paul's most personal letter. Obviously Philemon, which is written to an individual and where Paul is talking about himself to some degree is also very personal. Obviously Paul is personal in all his letters. I mean, that's one of the characteristics of Paul. He never retreats and hides behind his work. He's always out there. You know what he's thinking. You know what he's feeling. He doesn't hold back. He gives himself unreservedly. But in 2 Corinthians, he's the subject more often than in his other letters. And that's by necessity. That wouldn't have been Paul's first choice, but he felt obligated to do that. So he's forced to list his achievements and accomplishments. He's forced to list his sufferings. He also has to tell about his internal turmoil at some length. And that's why I say it's very personal because Paul isn't, well, I mean, Paul is telling you about what he did, but he's also telling you about what he felt. And he's not able to focus on the mission. He's not able to focus on doctrine like he can do in Romans and Ephesians. He has to deal with sticky, messy, personal stuff. Well, let's look at a couple of those situations where he's reviewing his internal turmoil, so you can see what I mean. Chapter 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I thought I was going to die. And that's the bottom line. Whatever the situation was, Paul thought, okay, this is it. I'm dead now. It turned out not to be true, but God let him go through that. And God let him go through that to help Paul to trust God and not himself. Or then again, jump over to chapter 2 and verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed to Macedonia. Paul was in an open missionary field. He had the opportunity to preach, but he was so disquieted by Titus not being there that he cut short his time there. He went looking for Titus. Well, here's a Paul who isn't always sure what to do. Here's a Paul who's making judgment calls. Here's a Paul who feels lonely and isolated. Later on, God comforts him by the coming of Titus. Or then again, jump forward to chapter 6. And then in 
Well, let's start with verse 4 so you understand that's the whole sentence. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, and needs, and distresses, and stripes, and imprisonments, and tumults, and labors, and sleeplessness, and fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. Now, this is not so much his internal distress, but this is what he experienced. As a minister of God, he had need for patience because he was in tribulations. He was in needs, in other words, not having enough, in distresses, in stripes and imprisonments and tumults and labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. What is Paul's life like? Well, that's not painting a very rosy picture, is it? He needed patience. He needed endurance for all of that. So 2 Corinthians is highly personal. So if you want to know what it was like to be Paul on a day-to-day basis, what, what did it feel like to be the Apostle Paul? Well, read 2 Corinthians and realize you were on an emotional roller coaster. There were moments where it was just bliss. You were preaching Christ and people were believing. And wow. And then there was the flip side of it. You were cast down. He'll talk about that. Cast down, but not destroyed. There's a great deal of pressure that was brought to bear on Paul, and that would have destroyed him if God hadn't comforted him. Now, because Paul is reviewing the recent past from a present that is better in a lot of respects, That's one reason you find these hills and valleys, emotionally speaking, in 2 Corinthians. And then that's made worse by the fact that although most of them seem to have come around, there are still some obstinate troublemakers who are grieving him deeply. If you look up the word for comfort, parakaleo, it also can mean to beseech or to exhort, depending on the context. But it's used 21 times in Acts, then it's used 18 times in 2 Corinthians. It's used, I believe, nine times in Matthew and Mark each. And then in terms of Paul's letters, the letter that has it mixed most frequently is 1 Thessalonians. So you can see that within Paul's writings, this idea of comforting and beseeching is more prevalent in 2 Corinthians than in any other. But we're not starting 2 Corinthians from scratch. When we're asking what is 2 Corinthians about, Well, we have 1 Corinthians to work with. You might remember I said the theme of 1 Corinthians was glorying in the Lord, not boasting in yourself, but boasting in an all-sufficient Christ. Well, Paul echoes that. He actually quotes Jeremiah 9.24, let him who glories glory in the Lord, in both letters. So in order to really figure out 2 Corinthians, you do need 1 Corinthians. You do need to take on board that perspective because he's still correcting people who boast about things that they shouldn't boast in. He still has to work with that. He still has to set before the Corinthians that the Christian life is very different from everything that their worldly mindsets and everything that that they'd been taught when they were being brought up was about. And you still run into this a lot. You run into it with people who say, well, I'm not going to be a dummy. Nobody's going to take advantage of me. Well, people took advantage of Paul all the time. And he let it happen. It's not that he wasn't aware of it. He knew it was happening. He just figured it was okay for the sake of the gospel. He figured he had bigger fish to fry. He figured he wasn't invested in that worldview, in that mindset anymore. And so he didn't care. 
That was a hard lesson for the Corinthians to learn. That's a hard lesson for us to learn. But when we're glorying in the Lord, our status, how we're seen, our reputation, if people respect us or not, if people are polite to us or not, we're not that worried about it. We can let a lot of that go. Well, Paul continues with that theme. He does let a lot go. Now, there's a man who has been brought to repentance. And what is Paul worried about? He's worried about the man being swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. That's not a worldly mind. God, I'm glad he's suffering. That's what we would tend to feel, right? But Paul has a heart of mercy, even for offenders, even for sinners. And he's learned it from Christ. That's why he beseeches us in chapter 10 by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. There's a wonderful verse to take and to meditate on. What did Paul know about the meekness and gentleness of Christ that led him to beseech the Corinthians by those qualities to do what they should? Moving on to the contributions. We've we've kind of already touched on these in a lot of ways. 2 Corinthians tells us what it's like to be Paul, what it was like to feel all of these things that he felt as he went through the ups and downs of ministry. But because it's about comfort, 2 Corinthians also really tells us a lot about the value of suffering. And we need to be quick here because I know we're running out of time. So very quickly, reminder, chapter 1, verse 4, God comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. Why does God allow us to go through trials and tribulations so that we can be his instruments to comfort others as well? There's a meaning in it. There's a value. There's a purpose to it. It's not to say that you enjoy your tribulations. You certainly do not. But they're not for nothing. They do have value. God comforts you in them. And so you learn how to comfort others also. You can share what God used to comfort you. Or then again, here's another value of suffering. Chapter 4, verse 17, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Is there a meaning in your suffering? Is there a value to it? Well, a lot of times in terms of this world, you don't see it. You think, I grind on year after year in a loveless marriage. I grind on year after year with debilitating physical pain. There's so much that I can't do that I could do if only I didn't have this trial, this burden, this weight dragging me down. You know, you may not see the value of that suffering in this life. But take it from Paul. He had a reason to know. It was working for you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Is there a value in suffering? In God's economy, yes, there is. It will be worth it after all. Maybe it won't be worth it tomorrow, but you're not living for tomorrow. I hope you're not living for tomorrow. You're living for eternity. And the weight of glory that is being worked out is eternal. Let that sink in. Your temporary sufferings have eternal value. Make sure when you're thinking about whether you should give thanks or complain that you include that element in it. Include the element of hope in your estimate of whether life is worth it today or not. 
Or then again, jumping forward to chapter 12, verses that hopefully everybody is familiar with. What is the value of suffering? Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Was there a value in suffering? Well, suffering kept Paul humble. Suffering kept Paul humble enough to be useful. Suffering kept him from floating off with a big head. That's a value in suffering, and it's a value we should not overlook. But then look at verse 9 again. You, I've already quoted it. You already know this. Paul had prayed he'd besought the Lord three times for this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan to be taken from him. And the Lord's answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly will I rather, here's the key word, boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a paradox for you. But that antinomy in your pipe and smoke on that for a while. When I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. What is the value of suffering? The value of suffering, Paul learned as Job learned. There's more to know about God. And some of what there is to know about God emerges in suffering better than in any other way. You remember after his sufferings, Job says that to God. I'd heard of you with the hearing of the ears. Now I see you. Now I see. And Paul learned that God's grace was sufficient. How could he have learned that if he hadn't been weak in himself? If he hadn't been stretched beyond measure? But then there's also value in suffering because it glorifies God. His strength is made perfect in weakness. Others can see it's not Reuben. It's not Paul. It's not. It's God holding them up. So 2 Corinthians has a lot to say about the value of suffering. And when we're dealing with our sufferings, the perspective of 2 Corinthians, I think, is one that we probably all need a little bit more of. He also highlights the contrast of the ministry. All right, we'll, we'll try to go quickly here um, and just mention these things in passing more than anything. So what is the Christian ministry? Well, there's a lot you could say about that, but there's this duality, and it's a duality we, we just touched on. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul applies that idea to the idea of the Christian ministry when he says, we have, he's talking about ministers there, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. What is the Christian ministry? It's glory in clay pots. That's what you've got. So you have a double character. You have the weak, the flawed, the muddy human being. And then you have the glorious gospel. What a contrast. What a bright contrast between who I am, what I am, and the message that I have to bring to God's people. So... Why did God do it? So that the excellency of the power would be of God. So that God would be glorified. So that the one who boasts would boast in the Lord and not in himself and not in Paul and not in etc. But there's another sense in which the Christian ministry is 
defined by a sharp contrast. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We're the same thing to both. To both we are the fragrance of Christ. His message isn't different. For one thing, Paul doesn't know who's being saved and who's perishing. Not certainly, not clearly, not in every case. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? You see, every time God's word is preached, people either respond in faith or they respond by hardness of heart. And as you respond in hardness of heart, you get harder and harder and harder and harder. So if on the one hand, I'm holding out the life-changing, life-bringing gospel, people are believing, people are pressing into the kingdom, well, glory to God. But that's the only message I have to hold out. And if people don't like it, if people harden themselves under it, well, God will be glorified in their condemnation. But if you think about it, that's what we're doing. Either souls are being saved or souls are being condemned. And most of the time, both things are happening to one degree or another in different persons. The very same message. I can't change the message. It's a life-giving message. So I can't change it. But for some... They're taking it and they're distorting it. They're resisting it. They're being hardened by it. And they are increasing their own condemnation. Every faithful ministry increases the condemnation of some of its hearers. Who is sufficient for these things? Do you think I can look out at my congregation and say, I'm going to increase the condemnation of some of these people and just be quite happy about that? But what choice do we have? I would rather not condemn anybody. But this is the Christian ministry. Some people will hear and will be hardened. That's not my fault. But it is an effect. It is a response to what I do. Who is sufficient for these things? Well, Paul tells us. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, chapter 3, verse 5. And then finally, 2 Corinthians teaches us the true value of generosity. We should probably spend a couple weeks just talking about this, but he's talking about the collection. He's talking about how people have come together, how they've sacrificed and given in order to help the poor saints in Jerusalem. And the conclusion of that whole discussion is, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, you would have thought that his indescribable gift would be the gift of Christ. And in one sense, it is. That is an indescribable gift. I'm not denying that. But what does Paul have in mind immediately? He has in mind that God's grace has reached human hearts. And the response of generosity, the response of giving is also an indescribable gift. So when you give to support the work of the church, when you give to relieve the needy, what is that? That is God's indescribable gift to you, that you have that kind of grace in your heart. Wow, that should motivate giving. 